Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrano. Thanks for inviting me into your home, long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed rec room, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Hello to all of you listening in on one of our affiliate stations across North America, those of you who utilize the Conspiracy Show app. Fabulous and free download. Listen anywhere in the world. Crystal clear audio. Those of you watching the live YouTube stream tonight, and we are live on YouTube again this evening after uh, some absence. And hello to all of you in the, uh, the live chat who join us every week without fail. However and wherever you're listening and watching, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes and I thank you for your fine company. A folklorist and cryptozoologist, paranormal researcher Ronald L. Murphy Jr. is uh, standing by. He has been fascinated with the paranormal since he was a child. And this passion continued with him. Uh, he researches the paranormal from a multidisciplinary perspective. He delves into the creation of archetypes of various cryptids and phenomena. He's researched throughout the U.S. and the U.K. He currently is the co-host of two radio programs carried on the Paranormal U.K. radio network, The Crypto Realm and Inside the Goblin Universe. And uh, we'll, we'll talk to him about his series of uh, books, the On series, uh, where he talks about vampires and goblins and so forth. Ronald Murphy Jr., welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Uh, I'm very good, sir, and I want to tell you how pleased I am to be on your show. Uh, we should mention that uh, you are one of the featured speakers at HillCon, Hillview Manor's Paranormal Convention. That's in Is that in Pennsylvania, correct? It is, that's right. It's around Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Now, I recently spoke with uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, a good friend of the program, and uh, she recently co-authored a book about uh, southwestern Pennsylvania, Green County, and all of the things going on in Green County. It sounds like the Skinwalker Ranch on steroids. What is it about Pennsylvania, uh, UFOs and Sasquatch and all sorts of strange cryptids, lobster aliens and you name it, uh, it's all right there to be found in Pennsylvania. What is it about that state? You know what, that's one question, and that's really what drives my research. There was a rash of Bigfoot sightings in the uh, mid-1970s, and I was just uh, a, young, a young boy at the time. You know, I was in elementary school, probably in second or third grade, and um, you know, my mother was fascinated by this subject, uh, so she would take uh, my brother and I out looking for you know, where these Bigfoot reports were taking place. And this was along the Chestnut Ridge of uh, Pennsylvania. But that's part of the Appalachian. So uh, whenever uh, uh, Rosemary's book uh, just came out, uh, Green County is a part of that whole Appalachia. Uh, and if you look at the map, uh, that also covers places like Point Pleasant, where the Mothman is sighted, and various other really strange locales where the unexplained, where this high strangeness seems to be uh, an epicenter. Um, now, I am within sight of the uh, Chestnut Ridge right now. I can actually see it from my porch as I'm talking to you here. Um, but uh, that has been called the Twilight Zone of Pennsylvania uh, since the 1970s. But, yeah, a lot of really weird things are going on. So... As a researcher, what do you make of it? You know, um, why are we lucky? Um, a lot of the uh, topography and the geology of this area and the Appalachians is rather unique. A lot of very hard 
or a lot of sedimentary stone. We have a lot of limestone in our area, a copious amount of uh, natural springs and running water, and all the you know essentials, the prerequisites that's needed uh, for traditional hauntings, as a lot of people would say. And there are a lot of hauntings around this area, but it also seems to be a magnet for the cryptids and the UFOs as well. Uh, so much so that you know one of the uh, one of the theories uh, proposed in the 1970s that um, extraterrestrials would visit this particular area to draw energy from the natural rock formations and the other natural resources around here because we have abundance of coal as well and some some pockets of oil. So there's a lot of different theories that's going on there. I am 49 years old right now, and I'm still pursuing what is behind this high strangeness of Pennsylvania. Uh, you mentioned uh, Chestnut Ridge. Of course, that's the title of one of your books, Unexplained World of the Chestnut Ridge. Now, there's also a lot of, sort of Indian burial mounds in Pennsylvania. There were a lot of interactions between some of the early colonists and uh, various Native American tribes, so a lot of blood in the soil a lot of disturbed Indian burial mounds. Do you think that has anything to do with it? Absolutely. If we're looking in terms of hauntings, um, this is a very haunted region because of what you had just said. Um, this is where the French and Indian War took place. Uh, this is where you know George Washington made a name for himself. Um, and it was also the site of, you know, this was an indigenous native population here of probably 15,000 people. Uh, and then after the French and Indian War, we see the numbers uh, dropping down to around 1,000 people uh, with, within just, you know, a, a few years' time. So there was complete devastation. And then following the French and Indian War, you have a process of genocide going on as well. So absolutely, if we talk about hauntings being the... the um, the end result of bloodshed. Absolutely, this area is, is prime for that. Um, but also going back to the Indian burial mounds, this was the site of the mound builder cultures. When we talk about the woodland, uh, the woodland tribes and things of that nature, so we think of the Adena with the great serpent mound or like the seat mound from the Hopewellian culture and all these great earthen works. These are the same people that were living in western Pennsylvania as well. Now, we have a few uh, Indian mounds in Pennsylvania, but the majority of them have been plowed over. And I've actually interviewed people uh, saying that they remember whenever they were children, their grandfather just plowing through these Indian burial mounds, you know, uncovering, you know, artifacts and bones and things, and just turning it over because it was part of the clearing process uh, to plant, um, you know, plant an agricultural crop. Nobody even thought about these kind of things with any kind of attitude or any kind of respect. Uh, and whenever we look at that, I mean, all all cultures around the world believe in the sanctity of the dead and the, the necessary uh, purpose of burial. And whenever that's disrupted, uh, you know, again, cultures around the world talk about um, the dead not being able to be settled. And I think a lot of that is going here in western Pennsylvania as well. Do you think then that there's some sort of, I don't know, spirit protector of, of these burial mounds that is being released? For example, someone pockets one of these artifacts found in a burial mound, takes it home, and then all of a sudden they have I don't know, shadow people showing up at their place? Is it is yep. the connection that clear? Yeah, 
you know, I think that there is a connection going on there. So we'll have to kind of uh, go roundabout and kind of like connect the dots. But when we talk about um, Indian burial mounds uh, and the idea of guardian spirits, uh, you know, I immediately think of things like the uh, the dogman or the the, the werewolf kind of uh, figures, um, the beast of Bray Road. Uh, these werewolf type creatures uh, were always located very near um, burial mounds. A lot of them were even seen in and around burial mounds. And if we talk about the history of these types of things, if we go back even to ancient Egypt, you know, Anubis, the god of the dead, the jackal-headed god, is this kind of dogman figure that presides over the realm of the dead and burial places. Whenever I research uh, in, in, in the area, especially with, with the dogman, because there is a, a rash of dogman sightings very close to where we're speaking right now, um, there is also that connection with um, ancient Indian settlements as well. Um, I, I am not uh, I'm sensitive in any ways, but I do employ uh, psychics and mediums uh, whenever I go about this. And um, uh, one particular area, three different psychics all had commented on an Indian protective spirit in that particular area. And that is an area of not only ghostly sightings, but also UFO sightings, Bigfoot sightings, and dogman sightings. So whenever we talk about protective spirits or spirits of the land, it's not just one type of manifestation. I believe it could be many, uh, and, and what we're dealing with is something that is linked between man and nature. It's kind of uh, this harmonious link that goes back to a culture that was very in touch with nature, but we, you know, as civilized people, uh, or so-called civilized people, have kind of broken that link and forgotten about uh, that that sensitivity that we once had with the wind. But Ronald, i, I got to jump in here. An excellent question that you uh, proposed there. Okay, i got to jump in here, Ronald. We're going to take a time out. We'll come back. Ronald Murphy, the author of On Mermaids, On Wild Men, On Dog Men, Unexplained World of the Chestnut Ridge, Gypsy Heart, a poetry collection, Haunted History, Westmoreland County, Pennsylvania. Back with more of our conversation when The Conspiracy Show returns. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Speaking with Ronald L. Murphy, and he'll be in Pennsylvania for a paranormal conference. Give us the details on that again, Ronald. I know it's happening this fall in September. It's called HillCon. Uh, it's been going on for a number of years, and it's a great haunted location for one thing um, but what also they do is they bring in presenters that are going to talk about hauntings or in my case we're going to be talking about cryptids and various other paranormal phenomenon for the, a one day event uh, that takes place as you said uh, uh, I'm, I'll look up the date for you, I, I'm terrible with dates Septem- I do not have sorry, my, September my 22nd. calendar in front of us but yes uh, September it, 22nd. it's going to be an exciting thing, I have actually attended it before as a guest and it, it's really an interesting um, architectural place, to tell you the truth. Uh, very creepy, uh, full of all kinds of stories, uh, you know, anecdotal and some, you know, first-hand accounts of hauntings there, uh, but also a great forum to hear a lot of different perspectives on the supernatural and the paranormal. Right. It's September the 22nd. It's 11 a.m. to 6 p.m. This takes place at a manor, Hillview Manor, in Newcastle, Pennsylvania. And it's hauntedhillviewmanor.com is the website, hauntedhillviewmanor.com. 
com. Now, uh, you were talking about uh, dogmen, and uh, you mentioned the, the Beast of Bray Road, which is in Wisconsin. So obviously, I mean, this is uh, this is a fairly widespread uh, phenomena, sightings of this particular cryptid, uh, dogmen. Now, do you believe that these are are these skinwalkers? Are these uh, are these just some heretofore unrecognized, uncategorized uh, mammal? What do you think is going on with the dogmen? Uh, another great question. I, I, I appreciate it whenever the host is up on top of things <laughs> like this. So, so this is great. So are we talking about something that's, you know, supernatural, that has the ability to shapeshift, uh, or are we talking about, you know, some sort of cryptid, some sort of uh, link uh, to the Pleistocene or something? And that's a great question, and I cannot put my finger down on this because there are some cases uh, from, like, the late 1800s in Montana of a beast that was uh, preying upon uh, wildlife and livestock uh, that was killed, and it seems to be remarkably similar to something like a dire wolf or some sort of large canid uh, from the from the um, from the you know the ice age. Uh, in that particular case, I think that we're dealing with it, it, the same way that goes with the beast of Gévaudan that was uh, you know terrorizing the uh, the French countryside in the uh, the, the mid to late. Uh, 1700s. That seems to be some sort of, you know, predator that has a basis in um, reality. It has a basis in biology. But then we're dealing with things that, you know, is not quite so easily to explain. You know, um, interviewing witnesses that see these creatures uh, bipedally walking down um, a, a road at night and feeding out of garbage cans, you know, it seems to have this this sort of getting back to the term high strangeness to it that it seems to be this amalgamation or chimera of man and beast so you know what are you to make about this i mean is there a transformation going on um, i have done interviews on people that do claim that they do transform um, and just like you would see in the movies, they, it, it doesn't seem to have any kind of a lunar activity associated with it, but it's almost as if it's um, um, uh, just a part of their life. Uh, one particular individual that I interviewed said that he could feel it coming on, and he had to leave his girlfriend and his girlfriend's uh, child because he was afraid that he was going to hurt them. And he went to this very isolated area of western Pennsylvania, and um, he transformed into this creature. And while he was in this very isolated area, he ran into another creature just like him that was uh, uh, residing in that same area. So these are very interesting stories. You know, what are we supposed to make of these? Is this a psychological projection by somebody that has some sort of mental illness? It's possible, but the more that I interview people, the more it seems there's some sort of basis in fact that there is something indeed going on. And, of course, I research from a historical point of view, and if we would look back at tells from the Middle Ages, um, we do see the idea of some sort of transformation going on. and um, some of the cases are very disturbing. There was uh, uh, one gentleman uh, in uh, in Germany uh, that claimed to transform into a uh, into a, a wolf, and he obviously was able to transform into something because he was able to take down cattle, uh, but he also preyed upon human beings as well. 
so there's some sort of supernatural involved with many of these uh, transformation cases. So I think, you know, if you would, if you, I actually wrote a book on the subject called On Dogman, Tracking the Werewolf Through History. And I look at these different cases where some of them appear to be, you know, cryptid-related, some to be appear to be nothing more than folklore, but there are a lot of cases out there that really does not fit any particular, um, you know, heading. And you kind of put that out over there and just, you know, kind of shrug and say, I have no idea what's going on. It had to be a werewolf because you're left with that conclusion at the end of the day. Uh, what about the idea that uh, that these are a manifestation of the human mind? Uh, I think that the Tibetan monks had a had a system of you know mind power. They were called tulpas. The idea that there is a psychic connection between even UFOs. Uh, in fact, there is um, uh, a gentleman uh, that, uh, that up here, you noted Canadian ufologist Grant Cameron, uh, who has um, who has talked to. People who were allegedly part of, you know, the Majestic Twelve, uh, this group of uh, government uh, ufologists, sort of that are that are charged with trying to keep a lid on the secret, the UFO secret, and and they have told him that if you want to understand the UFO phenomena, you have to understand ESP. Is there is there a connection? Do you think then between uh, ESP and and many of these cryptids? Um, well, you know, the, the human mind is capable of very many things. And in the end, it is what forms our reality. Um, it's a it's a a blank canvas on which we project whatever we want. And you know, if if it is real to us, that is part of our you know tangible reality around us. And it might not be the same reality for other people. The idea of tulpas has has really um, interested me for a number of years. That if enough people think about something, um, that this something can take on and can can derive out of this energy. Uh, very interesting. Um, but what has happened to me as of late, uh, because I do a lot of research into fairy folklore as well, um, and what has happened to me as of late, I've kind of flip-flopped now, and I'm now of the belief that there may indeed be elemental energy out there uh, that resides in nature that is capable of projecting images into us. So kind of like a, a, a reverse of that. Um, and this has taken, you know, for me probably two decades of research into this, uh, but whenever we look at medieval encounters of fairies, we, we hear the term of glamour, and this was a way for the fairy to kind of mask what it truly was. And the more I look at the term, the more it seems that there is this idea of a psychic influence. Um, but it's not us projecting it ourselves onto it. It's projecting itself onto us. There is something to be said for that. Um, we don't have any clear pictures of Bigfoot besides the Patterson-Giblin film. We don't have any clear pictures of werewolves, but people still claim to see them. Is So is it possible that we are dealing with an intelligent energy uh, that is, you know, as 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 real to this, you know, natural world as a human being uh, that is capable of, you know, interfering with the way the human mind thinks. 
Um, it sounds a little outlandish, but if you look at cultures from around the world, even with the cultures of the Aborigines of Australia dating back to, you know, 65,000 years ago, they have the idea of this dream time, this time out of time that's inhabited by so many different types of spirits with this capability of interacting. And the idea of the shaman throughout history is trying to be the conduit between one world and the other. Is it possible that when we talk about the, the jinn, which is very popular in the Middle East, or, you know, when we talk about fairies and European folklore, are we talking about the same type of, of earth energy that is capable of projecting images onto the human mind? Now, the more I research into this, and as, I, as, as you said at the, at the opening, I look at this linguistically, I look at this psychologically, sociologically, and as many different ways as I can, it does indeed seem that there's something out there that is capable of influencing uh, uh, us so much so that it's become an archetype and it's embedded into our DNA. How about for you personally? Uh, have you had a, a, a paranormal encounter? Have you seen uh, a Sasquatch or a UFO? Or what, what has been your personal experience? Um, as far as... Uh, and, you know, I still, I still get uh, goosebumps thinking about this. Um, I've always been interested, as I said, since I was a kid. Um, but I did not have any kind of encounter until I was in my mid-twenties. And um, there was something going on outside of the house, this howling. Uh, that's all I could describe it. You know, I was an athletic person at the time. Uh, my brother, who was two years younger than I am, he was an athletic person at the time. And we heard this sound that always occurred between 12 and 3 o'clock in the morning. So one night we said, you know, if this happens again, we're going to go out and see what it is. So we grabbed our baseball bats, and, you know, almost like clockwork, this thing starts howling outside, this 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 whistle type of howl, and uh, we went out to investigate it. And in the back of our, our, our yard was yeah, a, a pretty dense wooded area, and um, we got close to whatever it was because you could actually feel the sound that it was making reverberating. It, it was that kind of very deep in our body type of uh, uh, rumbling going on. Um, but when we came close enough to whatever it was, and we never saw what it was, but when we came close, the thing began to growl at us. But to the point that you could actually hear it taking in air in order to make this very guttural, snarling sound. But was what was so um, frightening about the whole thing is the whistling, howling sound was going on at the same time. Um, so we both, you know, we, we both ran back to our house. We, you know, we were terrified. So that was my first brush uh, with the unknown. And then the other time was I was doing a dogman sighting, um, and um, what appeared to be um, uh, static electricity um, started to flash around us. And I turned back, and look, this was a very desolate area, by the way. There was not a, the nearest house is probably three or four miles away. And we looked back the path from which we came, and what, what appeared to be a flare um, lit up and suddenly trickled off. Uh, so we went to go to that because we assumed that it, there was a person out there, um, and, but there was nobody there whatsoever. And um, I actually called out, and something called my name back. Uh, and whatever called my name, it actually emanated from a cemetery that sat up on a promontory that was overlooking this area where we were located. Um, and after my name was called, the, my, the name came off uh, from the left. And as after my name was called, on the right 
something began to tra- to follow us as we were walking, and um, we could hear it snarling at us. And this is where my research comes into the play that something was projected onto us because I was with another researcher um, after the event. We both wanted to separate rooms, and we kind of. Um, debriefed everybody on what we saw and we both came up with the same thing neither one of us saw anything but we could tell that it was a bipedal creature uh we could tell that it had these kind of yellow glowing eyes we could tell that it had you know sharp teeth and we could tell that it was actually stalking us now we did not see anything uh did we know that instinctually you know was that part of the fight or fight response you know what was going on there i have no idea but i do feel strongly that whatever was was shadowing us that evening was able to project what it wanted to into our into our perception right there's the music we'll um pick this up on the other side ronald l murphy jr will be a featured speaker at hillcon september 22nd at the hillview manors paranormal convention in pennsylvania hauntedhillviewmanor.com the website if you're interested in grabbing a ticket we'll pick this up on the other side the conspiracy show my name is richard serrett when in doubt blame the government you're listening to the conspiracy show with richard serrett welcome back ronald murphy jr is with us you've also written on vampires and uh, i was recently uh, speaking at a conference uh, up here in ontario called occulticon and uh, a woman uh, came up to me after my my uh, presentation and asked me what my take on vampires was and uh, i said well do you mean sort of this subculture of people who you know they they have all the trappings of of being a vampire they they buy the the uh, the porcelain teeth or they actually have their teeth filed uh and they maybe they have an aversion to light they actually partake in you know drinking blood all consensual of course she goes no i mean actual Vampires, and she talks about you know on the dark web that you can find these people who claim that they are you know descended from a long line of actual vampires. What is your what is your take on that, Ronald? Um, well, again, that's a very uh, interesting uh, uh, question. I think you know a lot of people have asked me the same way, uh, the same thing. Do vampires exist? And of course, I say definitely because people do um, associate themselves and identify themselves with vampires. But we're talking about something that you know this thing, this, this drive to stay alive from the uh, taking of human blood. Um, again, throughout history, there are many instances where it seems to be that there were human-like creatures uh, that that did feast on on blood. Um, or at least were believed to feast on blood. That's the important thing. Um, also, some certain cryptids may be responsible for this as well, too. Uh, some of the vampire lore deals with um, uh, creatures that come out of caves, you know, hair-covered creatures that appear to be almost like small baboons or what some people colloquially call in the southern United States hell monkeys. Uh, in Greece in particular, there was uh, this, this belief and these vampire creatures that would come out at certain times of the year out of these, you know, these caves to feast upon um, the living. So I think that we're dealing with a lot of different things here. Um, I have investigated vampires uh, in New England. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of vampire graves in New England, and it even says on some of the gravestones, vampire. Um, but what the, the evidence is, the preponderance of the evidence shows, is that these people were the unfortunate victims of tuberculosis. 
um, you know, one particular case of, uh, of uh, Mercy Brown. Um, she was actually believed to be a vampire. Uh, the father and some townspeople dug her up, uh, you know, found out that she still had some blood in her, um, took out her heart and burned it, and had uh, their sick son drink of it. Now, he eventually died of tuberculosis. But, I mean, this, this happened, and this is a mind-boggling to think about this. This happened in 1892. Uh, so we're not talking about ancient history here. You know, professional baseball was already being played at this point. So we're not talking about, like, the dark ages. That's right. Betty White uh, had a, a thriving career. <laughs> I was going to point out that my uh, my uh, great-grandmother was actually born in 1890. You know, I knew her as a child. But that's absolutely the case, getting to that point. Right, but, but, um, but what's the yeah. connection then... Connect the dots between tuberculosis and vampirism. Um, well, it, it appears, well, they call it consumption because it appears that it's something what's consuming the body. You know, each day you were getting progressively weaker, and then you would start coughing up, and sometimes your, 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 uh, your spit would have blood in it. You know, so it was a very peculiar type of death. Uh, and it came on quite suddenly. So you could be healthy one day, and then you started to get gradually, gradually worn down. And, you know, you would eventually, you would eventually succumb to this disease. Um, and it was a thriving disease uh, throughout the New England area, you know, from Connecticut the whole way up to Maine. From Connecticut the whole way up to Maine, you could find vampire graves as well. Um, but, um, you know, it was just a very ghastly type of thing. Uh, medical science really didn't know how to deal with it until relatively recently. So it was just not a pleasant way to die. And whenever, it was kind of like the plague. Whenever you caught it, members of your family were going to get it too. It's almost inevitable. And you were looking for a way to cure it. Uh, and if you know, if, if science couldn't cure it and your prayers couldn't cure it, then you're going to start seeking out the old ways, the superstition ways. And you have to understand that, you know, America was the, 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 the land of, you know, of refugees from all around the world. So they would pull in some of these ancient folk ways uh, to try and to, to combat what was in their midst. Well, I, I understand if you succumb to tuberculosis how one might think, okay, that person was, you know, uh, becoming very anemic, like they were being drained of their blood, so maybe they were a victim of a vampire. But how then do you connect someone who has tuberculosis with being the vampire? That's, that, that is the step. That's exactly right. So um, what happened with the Brown case um, is that the mother had died first. And then Mercy had contracted it, then she passed away, then her brother Edmund got it. I could never make the connection why they didn't dig up the mother's grave. It never came to me. Um, but it seems that, that Mercy died very, very suddenly, and her grave was readily available. We're talking about a very brutal winter whenever this happened, so of course the corpse pretty well maintained. It was almost in, in refrigeration type of state uh, at this time, even though this was 1892, it was still, you know, very well preserved. And I think it was just a perfect storm why they came to her, that her, her grave was just there, you know, she was just, she just died and came upon it. But, um, you know, that is one of those curious cases. And, and, the reason why we keep on coming back to Mercy Brown is because it really had an impact on the psyche of America and actually the world. 
Bram Stoker may have named um, uh, his character in in his Dracula Mina after Mercy because of that you know that similarity in sounding name. So it really made an impact, and, and certainly Bram Stoker did know this story. So a lot of it probably did go into his you know his creation of these characters. But uh, yeah, that and I was asked that I, I spoke at uh, the Ocean State Paracon last year uh, on this various subject up in uh, Rhode Island, and I, again somebody asked that question. Why why do they pick on poor Mercy? And the only um, the only response that I could have is because you know her grave was readily available. But I think that you know we're talking about at this point um, a a family that is craving answers, and they're go- going to seek out the answers any which way they can. And it's almost like a mindless type of thing that they're going out there, kind of like a vendetta against whatever's going on. And they assume that it was something evil taking over their community. At kind of like the Salem witch, witch hunt, you know, that, that happened, uh, you know, two, 200 years before this case. Right. Um, that it was just, you know, this kind of mob mentality and out they want. All right, Ronald, we'll take a time out. We'll come back. I want to uh, pick your brain about the, the Highgate vampire incident in London back in the late 1960s. And uh, we'll do that right after this. Ronald Murphy, Jr., will be uh, a speaker at the Hillcon Paranormal Convention. That's September 22nd at uh, Hillview Manor in Newcastle, Pennsylvania. Back with more in a moment. Stay with us. There is nothing concealed that won't be revealed. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Ronald L. Murphy is with us. Uh, The Highgate Vampire episode back in the 1960s, late 1960s. I mean, this gripped, I think it's East London. Uh, People were, they were just going crazy. There were people, it was like right out of the the movies, like a hammer film. People with torches jumping over the the cemetery gate trying to to hunt this vampire. What do you make of that incident? Uh, And I think that this is a good segue from what we just talked about, poor Mercy Prop up there uh, in the New England states. Um, It was that mob mentality, wasn't it? Now, the Highgate Vampire began with uh, a group of uh, paranormal enthusiasts uh, deciding to spend the night uh, in a cemetery, and, you know, they saw something gray. Originally, it wasn't called a vampire. Originally, it was called, I believe it was called a specter, if I'm not mistaken, or a ghost. It was something ghostly, definitely, but not a vampire. But what happened was uh, a local tabloid um, kind of insinuated that it might have been a vampire and then there was reports that you know the coffin from the 1700s of somebody from Romania was buried there and he may be the king of the vampires and it starts taking on a life of its own so we see very easily how things can spread in the media and around towns and things uh, so then you know the idea that Satanists were playing a part in this they were raising the dead there was black magic being performed, this actually really did uh, cause a uh, response by the citizens of that area to, like you had said, pitchforks and 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 torches and breaking down gates to go on a hunt. Empire. And we're talking about, you know, this is a time after the Beatles had already invaded America. So we're talking about a very modern type of event here. This isn't the ancient past. This is a relatively new thing. Right, but were there not animals found in the cemetery that had been exsanguinated, and uh, there was also a woman who lived on the, I guess, the periphery or the border of the, the cemetery who claimed that she had been attacked? There's also the report. 
report of possibly finding a charred remains of a headless woman? Absolutely. Now, whenever it gets to the idea of the animal, uh, the animals being drained of blood, I do feel that that was a part of some sort of black magic ritual or some sort of satanic ritual that was uh, that was done in that particular area because of the legend and not vice versa. You know, it, it, it kind of uh, was was carried out because this was the place to do it. This was a place of evil when, you know, this evil had to be appeased. I think that, that was going on. Now, there are very many anecdotal things as well, but as, as someone that studies, you know, uh, as a folklorist, I could not find any corroborating evidence about an actual death in any of the contemporary papers. Now, what is interesting is that in Erie, Pennsylvania, uh, not very far from where Hillcon's going to be, and not, not very far from Niagara Falls and all that good stuff, but um, there is actually the mausoleum of, of a believed vampire up there as well. And this happens, you know, in the uh, the late 1800s, whenever, you know, these group of boys decided they were going to spend the night in the cemetery, and there's, you know, the, the, the figure of something rising out of the grave, and pretty soon the people People on the periphery of the town is shown up with their blood drained. Again, no reports in the newspapers regarding all this. This is all nothing more than folklore. It makes for a great story, uh, but people to this very day still go to see the grave of this believed vampire in Erie, Pennsylvania. Where is the most haunted location uh, in Pennsylvania for your money? Um, you know, people would say Gettysburg. You know, uh, 51,000 people died uh, over, you know, a couple-day period. Uh, I have been uh, in that area only one time and never as an investigator. I investigate uh, going back about 100 years before that into the French and Indian War. That's one of my favorite subjects in history. It's really what made America what it is today. You know, you think about... Um, you know, how uh, we, we got our future president and how we, we decided to um, split away from England. This was all during this particular uh, tumultuous period. Now, we have within, you know, a stone's throw from where I'm at, we have about four or five major battles that occurred in the French and Indian War. And these are sites that are not memorialized in any way. These are sites that are nothing more than open fields now. And with that kind of, you know, hidden history behind it, these deaths that meant so much that are kind of been forgotten. Um, I, I wrote a book on ghosts as well, and I, and, I, and I said in there that ghosts are the bookmarks to history. And I do believe that in, in all honesty. You know, it kind of really tells you that there was a human being here and they need to be heard and i think sometimes whenever the story is not being heard you know certain you know voices will rise up from the ether if you will uh to make themselves known and i think that that's what's happening in my neck of the woods and why this place is so haunted do you collect evps electronic voice phenomena you know what I, I I do I do go out. Um, I told you that one time, whenever my name was being called from the cemetery, um, I we were videotaping it the entire time. We did get the strange light anomalies, but no sound whatsoever. So that was a very eerie thing. You know, my, myself and my partner both heard our my name being called, but it was. Um, I do use it. I've never got what would be called a Class A EVP. I've heard a lot of people with 
ones that sound as if something was speaking right into the microphone, uh, but then I've heard uh, a few other ones that sound like you had to really, really take it apart to figure out what was going on. I do put credence into it. Uh, I'm not a tech guy, uh, so to speak. You know, I'm, I'm not one of those guys that really am comfortable around electronics, but, uh, you know, I do utilize it as a tool, of course. What do you make of the argument that uh, the, the association between ghosts and old buildings, and it has to do with black mold, that a continued exposure to black mold, which thrives in older structures, can cause hallucinations and so forth? Uh, you know, I, I will look at any and all um, arguments, uh, even the idea of ergot up there for the uh, mass uh, uh, hysteria involving the witches up in Salem, Massachusetts, which was one of the things that was blamed. Um, the idea of of uh, black mold in certain buildings may be coincidental, you know, but, but, but what are you going to do whenever outside spaces are supposedly haunted? Or, you know, burial mounds in England and Scotland and Ireland are, are haunted. And these natural environments are haunted. That's a little bit more difficult. And then we talk about, you know, ghost sightings at sea, like the Flying Dutchman and other type of, of ghostly ships, you know. It, it seems to transcend just buildings. Although I'm sure that there was times that people could move into a place that, you know, is, is, is falling apart and things. And I'm sure that, that could influence them. Some people, of course. But, you know, that's in only in slight cases. And no way should that rule out every single sighting uh, throughout history. Michael Shermer, the, uh, the, the skeptic or debunker, says that, that all paranormal, the, the fate of the paranormal is to become normal once we expand our horizon of understanding. And that is that that, uh, you know, eventually we'll find out what all this is about. Do you subscribe to that, that there is nothing supernatural in the world or nothing paranormal? It's just something we haven't figured it out yet. <laughs> well, I am a man, you know, I'm a religious man. I, I believe that miracles are possible, and science really doesn't have a way to... Um, explain away miracles. Science likes to be able to explain away things because if you explain something or if you name something, you have control over it. I'm not that kind of narcissistic uh, guy. Um, I think that there are things out there that cannot be explained. I believe that there's things out there that are subjected to experiences, and I really like that. I like that there's mysteries out there. I like that there's things that go bump in the night. And I like the idea that humanity cannot rustle everything and cage everything and pin things down uh, neatly. I like that idea. And I think that there are things out there that can never be explained away. These great mysteries, uh, because we did explain all things away then we, we've lost a part of our humanity that I am so fascinated with, this, this, this curiosity of things that, you know, lie in this kind of twilight area between uh, the light and the dark. And, 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 I, and, I, and I trust that science will never be able to, uh, to categorize and explain everything away. And more importantly, I'll be out of a job. <laughs> <laughs> and what would I write on? That's absolutely the case. Look, every time I write... Or every time I do a radio show where I conduct my own interviews, at the end of the day, you're always left with more question marks. And the reason why shows are on like you do, and I, and I will have to tell you, this is truly one of the best shows I've ever been on, and I always enjoy to have a host that is so knowledgeable like yourself. The 
these are great forums because people really have not only experiences, but they have questions. You know, they, they, they're, they're wanting to know what happens or what happened to them, and they want to really talk to uh, our listening ear. And I'm glad that you're on here doing this kind of, a, kind of a service for these folks because there are a lot of mysteries out there, and I'm happy to be one of those people that is, you know, wading through all this stuff with you. Well, what's interesting is, you know, if you go into a room at a party, let's say there are 25 people in the room, you know, they're not going to open up about it. But over time, I mean, the odds are most of those people will have had some sort of an experience. You know, it might be the, a straight-laced, um, skeptical accountant or, you know, someone in the, from the medical profession, um, you know, a hardened person of science who doesn't believe in anything that they can't see, touch, feel, or smell. But it never ceases to amaze me. Over time, once you gain people's trust, how many of them, or, or if they feel the need to sort of unburden themselves, how many people will actually confess to have having had some sort of a paranormal experience? That's absolutely the case. Absolutely. They're looking for somebody. It's almost like a, a confessional. They're looking for somebody to listen to what they have to say. And, uh, and that is why I'm such an ardent believer in this, my friend. That's the reason why I keep looking. It's not these little two little anecdotal experiences that I've had and through all my research. It's dealing with people, just like you said. You know, they'll come up to your table at a conference or someplace that you're at and say, you don't believe this stuff, do you? And then, you know, you kind of go into it and they walk away and they come back a few minutes later and they tell you about their experience. And tears come to their eyes and they're visibly shaking because they're finally able to talk about something that happened to them to somebody that will not laugh and somebody that will understand. It's true. It's the big elephant in the room, and <laughs> nobody feels comfortable talking about it. Ronald, this has been uh, a great pleasure. Again, we should point out the HillCon Paranormal Convention happening September the 22nd. Hillview Manor in Newcastle, Pennsylvania. All right, my thanks uh, to Ian and Fass. Welcome aboard, Fass. He'll be working with us next week. Do you play guitar? Yes, you do. All right, good. It's, it's a prerequisite. If you are going to sit in that chair, you must be accomplished on a, uh, on a guitar. Uh, my thanks to Ian and Albert and Ryan. Back next week with a brand new program. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There is nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home.